God gave us marriage. Remember, as we're about to remind you further, marriage is God's idea, not man's. It is a covenantal promise that ultimately points us back to the relationship Christ has with the church. That's a good thing. So not only can we sing that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, I pray our marriages testify to the glory of the Lord. We're going to do something. This is a heavy topic this week. If you read ahead in the Sermon on the Mount, you know we're going to talk about divorce. I am a young man. And I am very aware that this is a heavy subject. That likely in this room, 100% of you have been impacted by divorce in one way or another. And it is overwhelming for me to get up in front of you and try to put the pieces together. Thankfully, I don't have to. We're going to look and see what the Word of God says. And we're going to do it very systematically. We're going to see what Jesus had to say about it. We're going to go back to why he referred to it in the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at how can we potentially divorce-proof our marriage and some basic principles that God's Word gives us. But we have to look at God's Word. But before we do, we need to pray. Because as you've seen all around you and in society today, marriage is an attack. Less people are getting married now because they don't see the need for that, that whatever you want to call it, that institution is what it's referred to now. It's no point or we don't want to make these commitments. But we're going to spend a time in what we used to call back when I first came to this church, pastoral prayer. We're just going to change one thing. I'm not going to pray out loud. What I'd like us to do is I'd like us to ask God to quiet our hearts and I'd like to go through a brief season of prayer, just a couple minutes. But as we start, you know, the scriptures tell us that we are to shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. We are to ascribe praise and glory to his name as the choir just did so wonderfully. So I'd like you to pause for a moment. And the fancy churchy word for that is adore God this morning. I want you, and if you want to say it out loud, do it. No one will judge you. If you just want to pray, in your heart, that's okay too. But pray just for a moment, Lord, you are, and finish that sentence. Ascribe the glory of God back to him that he deserves from us all the time. So let's pray for just a moment, ascribing glory to God. Lord, you are. If you want to answer out loud, great. If not, okay too. Second, the scriptures teach us very clearly that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. David cried out, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I don't know what baggage you come into church with this morning, but let's pause. Let's be still before the Lord and say, Lord, search my heart. You know me. And if he brings something to mind, confess your sin and ask him to forgive you.
The Psalms also teach us to give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Good answer. Well done, Brian. Thank you. So how often do we thank God? You know, I had a pretty great week when I look back and can think about it in context of I am a child of God. So why don't you thank God for what he's been up to this week? Thank him for what he's doing. Maybe it's tough to do that. Maybe it takes some discipline this morning. Find ways to thank the Lord, giving credit where credit is due, and that is to our Lord and Savior. Thank Jesus this morning. And finally, Paul teaches that we are to be imitators of Christ, that we are to to live as he died. In other words, serving one another in Christ-like love, making allowances for one another, being patient, humble, gentle, bearing with one another, meek. All of these things are included in the scripture. So let us pray for our church family this morning. Specifically, take a moment to pray for our married couples or those that are about to be married, or even those that you know might have gone through a divorce, that God would work, that we would be a people that reflect the light of Christ to the world around us. Lord, you are almighty. I stand before you knowing that I am a sinful man, but I have been washed by the blood of your son, Jesus, and I thank you for that. I cannot make myself pure, but I can come to you, and I thank you. I thank you for the week you've given us, for the sunlight that we see outside today. It's about time. And I thank you for the little things that have come from conversations this morning that you've blessed us with. I do pray for our church family, Lord, that we would be a family that imitates Jesus Christ, that shows the world your sacrificial love demonstrated through him, that we would love you and love others well. And Lord, as we look this morning into your word and at what Jesus had to say about divorce, Lord, please get me out of the way. I can't remember a time when I've been more nervous to preach. And so this morning I say, let my words be few. And would you speak mightily in your name? Amen. So why do we do that? Why did I pause and take a good section of our church time to pray? Well, one, if you know our core values, uh, we believe that we are to be prayerfully dependent on the Lord. Second, I can't get very many of you to show up over there during our pre-service prayer, so I'm bringing it to you. Somebody say amen. That's a good thing. Third, and most importantly, the scriptures tell us that we are to be prayerful always. And we should model that in our worship service in our own private lives. And I can tell you that I have prayed much as we dive into a very, very personal subject this morning. It it does impact us, as we said. And I want to tell you a story. I've been married for 13-ish years, almost, yeah, Something like that. 
She's not here this morning. She's upstairs. I'm safe. I've been married almost 13. Thank you. They know. Everybody else knows. Almost 13. I'm really not strung in mental math right now. I digress. And you know, our marriage has gone through some difficult times. And there was a point at about the two-year mark where there was just daily fights over one issue. And it came and it came. And every day the same issue popped up and we couldn't get around it. It was, we would get home from work, that issue was in front of us. We would get up in the morning, that issue was in front of us. And we wondered how in the world are we going to get past this issue? And finally, we had to come to a conclusion about which way you hang your toilet paper on the roll. (laughs) Because it was such a divisive issue in our marriage that we just couldn't get past it. You know, because if, if, if you're right, like me, you know that you hang it this way. So the roll hangs out so you don't have to dig up and under. And my wife seems to think for the weirdest reason that it's better to go the other way. And this was a major point in our marriage. Okay, not really. It really wasn't. So please don't get scared that we're about to get a divorce because of toilet paper. But you see, the reality is there are things of all sizes that can impact your marriage, are there not? Whether it be a roll of toilet paper or a wrong answer to how do I look today or much more difficulty, how do you interact with your in-laws, with your family? How do your parents treat your spouse? What happens if your children favor one more than the other? What happens if you married a jerk? (laughs) All of these things creep in and oh, so many more. And we live in a society of a couple of things. One, we live in a litigious society where you go to court, you get a divorce, all is good, fine. No big deal. In fact, recently, one of the most famous power couples in the world decided to get a divorce, but they they didn't want to call it a divorce. That sounded harsh. So the lead singer of Coldplay, and if you know the Avengers movies, Pepper Potts, uh, their real names are Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow. Thank you. I'm sorry, I forgot. They didn't want to get a divorce. They chose to consciously uncouple. Okay? Okay. Because divorce sounded harsh. So instead of divorce, let's consciously uncouple. It would be easier for the children. Let me tell you, it's not easier for the children. Call it whatever you want. The breakdown of a marriage is intensely damaging to your family, no matter how nice of people you are. Divorce is a horrible, horrible thing. And I'm not saying that as one who's just read about it. Many of you know my sister had to go through a very painful divorce and followed the scriptural basis all the way through. And she has lived a godly life and is an amazing saint. But not one of those things has made it any easier for her to raise three children on her own. Divorce always has consequences. I want you to remember that as we proceed. So what does God's word teach us about divorce? I am not going to apologize that the scriptures are very clear on what they teach about divorce. But stay with me till the end. Would you do that for me? 
We're going to walk all the way through. I cannot in clear conscience run from what the scriptures teach, but we do need to look at the big picture. So track with me. The first thing we see is we go back to where we stopped last week. Matthew chapter 5, we're moving our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we talked about marriage being God's idea. God has created a covenantal bond. And remember, covenants with God are a big deal. What God has joined together, let no man separate. That's why we use a wedding band. (laughs) I still lost mine. I have not found it yet, of course. But beside that, if when I get up and perform a wedding, and I told you this last week, I hold up one of those wedding bands and I say this unbroken circle is a symbol of the unbroken love God has for us and he has called you to have one for another in the bounds of marriage. It is a covenant before God and man. It is not meant to be broken ever, okay? Let's start there. God did not design marriage to be broken. The only way marriage was specifically to be broken was death. That's why we say till death do us part. But divorce does happen. And we find ourselves, Jesus being tested, uh, he will be later by the Pharisees in Matthew 19, And he'll expound upon these thoughts. But this is what he says in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So far, so good. You know, it's similar to our legal system today. It's a formal declaration of you are no longer married. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we need to understand the scope and context of what Jesus is saying. How many of you remember studying English and having to read a story called The Scarlet Letter? Anybody familiar with The Scarlet Letter? A few of you. It is a painful look at societal labeling, is a fancy way of saying it. A girl was caught in an act she shouldn't have been in, and she was labeled with a scarlet letter on, where was it? On her side, uh, on her shoulder area. And anyway, everyone in the world knew what she had done. That sin was out there for everyone to see. We go back to these times. The idea of carrying around the label of an adulterer was the same as a scarlet letter. It was a big deal. Today, we have websites saying, have an affair, it'll be good for your marriage. That is not what the mood was then. Adultery happened time and again. In fact, we read in another historical document that marriages had become so easy to break that many people would have been on their 25th husband or 23rd wife because they would just keep giving certificates of divorce. And so that's the culture we find ourselves in. I'll explain a little more in a bit. But Jesus says that if you divorce someone who has not been unfaithful, you cause her to, he's speaking to the men here, you cause her to be an adulteress and you, anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So, you know, I want to ask, what if you've got a, just a lousy marriage? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Well, yeah, he wants you to be full of the joy of the Lord. 
But the key to the joy of the Lord is obedience. So follow with me. Jesus says some harsh things there, but where does he get this idea of the certificate of divorce? Well, you've got to go all the way back to the Old Testament. And we need to pay attention here to what this says. I'll read all four verses. The next one will be on the next slide. But Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 3. If a man... If a man marries a woman, so far so good. Remember, uh, let what God has joined together, let no man separate. A woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Let's stop there. Men, this wasn't Moses telling the people, you're having a bad hair day, that's it, I'm getting a divorce. That was not what was going on here. He wasn't saying anything light. This was meant to be in a moral act. In other words, the, the NIV doesn't translate it very clearly, find something indecent about her, something unclean in the bounds and purity of marriage, of the marriage bed. She had been unfaithful somehow. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband, who has divorced her, is not allowed to marry her after, again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Don't bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Huh? That seems very confusing to me. What is he saying? Well, listen to this. This was a word given by God through Moses to protect the woman that was sent away by her husband for some reason other than adultery. It was, in other words, something that the husband might try to trump up and make an accusation, or it could have been a real thing but was not adultery. It was uncleanness in some way. Moses wasn't commanding divorce here. Notice that. He was demonstrating a condition and a consequence. The Jews were lightly divorcing their wives for anything like the bad hair day. And Moses is saying, no, this is for issues of impurity. This is for issues of uncleanness. This is for issues of immorality. This is not just because you're sick of your wife or they're hard to live with. God was providing protection And the Jews were lightly divorcing their wives and they weren't recognizing themselves as adulterers because they had the certificate of divorce. Look, I did the right thing. I got the divorce. I've moved on. I'm in the clear. That was the culture that was going on. In other words, the people were saying, if I can find something wrong with you, I'll give you a divorce. I'm done. I'm free and clear. I can go marry whoever I want. Hence why people ended up with 20 plus wives or husbands. That was not God's intent. Moses here, notice he does not, if you go back, he doesn't command divorce. He makes an allowance for it. It was never God's will that divorce should happen. So let's move on. What else do we learn? Well, if we get into Matthew chapter 19, Jesus expounds upon this teaching, okay? So track with me for a few more minutes. Haven't you read, he replied, the Pharisees, they look and they want to try to trap Jesus again. By the way, not a good idea to trap the, try to trap the Son of God with intellectual and philosophical questions. 
He was, is smarter than them, and he knew the right answer. And what was happening was there were two camps in the day. There was the camp that loved the teachings of Hillel. And what Hillel would teach was that you can get a divorce for any reason. It's all good. Just divorce them. It's fine. You should be happy. Maybe you've heard this today. You deserve to be happy. So get a divorce. The other camp was Shammai. And he said, under no circumstances should you get a divorce. Tough it out, live it out, obey God's word literally and completely. And so when the Pharisees are asking, what do you do in a case like this? They're trying to trap Jesus because if he doesn't agree with Hillel, then a whole lot of people out there are going to not want to listen to him because they like that Hillel has made it easy for them to get a divorce. If he affirms what Shammai was teaching about divorce at this point in culture and in time, well, then he's going to have to deal with this guy named King Herod. King Herod was in an adulterous relationship, and it cost Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, his head. So the Pharisees think, look at me, I am so smart, we're going to trap Jesus. There's no way he can answer this question, because either way he answers, he loses. So that's the background we're at. Listen to what Jesus says. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, like we talked about last week, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Just think about that for a moment. The Son of God giving a very clear picture of the basis for marriage, starting with the Creator God. Our God and our King created marriage. He created marriage as a covenantal bond between man, woman, and God himself. He gave marriage as a way of companionship and love and intimacy and wonderful sexuality in the bounds of marriage. He gave Adam a helpmate. Adam was lonely. How do you fight loneliness? Get a friend. A huge part of marriage is that you have a friend that is with you and that understands and loves you. That is God's design, God's creation. And here Jesus points right back to the beginning. And then he goes on and he reminds us, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. It's good to leave the house and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's a miracle. They're no longer two, but one. And again, it's said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Do we take such a high view of God that he is Lord of every area of our life, including marriage? Remember, ultimately, marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. Do we take such a high view of God's word that we hold marriage up there, that what God has joined together, let no man separate? No, we don't today. I know this because people are getting divorced left and right. Whatever the statistics say, it happens. And that was not God's intent. Well, let's go on. 
Well, then the Pharisees asked this question of that certificate of divorce that I read to you from Deuteronomy that Moses presented. And Jesus is just brilliant here. Notice what he says. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Moses permitted. He didn't command it. It's very important to note. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because what? They had a bad hair day? No, because their hearts were hard. But it is not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. How could Jesus say that so strongly? How could he be so hard when divorce was all around? Jesus, don't you understand? Relationships are hard. Yep, Jesus understands. How do I know that? Well, the Son of God, he who knew no sin, became sin for us, taking on the very nature of a servant, giving himself up for people like you and me that are hard to love. Maybe you're not, but I am. And Jesus did that on purpose out of his great love for us to purify the bride, to purify us, the church. Jesus gave himself up for us and says, I love you and will not give up on you. Even at the cost of my own life. Tell me marriage is hard and I promise you my answer will always be yes, it is. Praise the Lord because it's worth fighting for, because God has given it to us. Does this mean automatically that adultery should bring divorce? Because it says that. It says there's an exception, except for marital unfaithfulness. He's been unfaithful. She's been unfaithful. God tells me that I got to go get a divorce. No. He says you can't. If you come see me and you say there's been adultery, I'm going to say what can we do to put the pieces of your marriage back together. The first question I'll ask is, are you willing to fight for your marriage? And I'll go back to the beginning that God brought man and wife together as one flesh. And we will fight together to put the pieces of a marriage back together. God does not like adultery. He doesn't like idolatry. And adultery is a wonderful form of idolatry because we place someone else over God's will for our lives. Sex is better over here. I want this person. They are nicer, easier to be with, whatever the reason. And so I'm going to cheat because they understand me. No, there is no allowance for that. If you've been cheated on, my prayer is that the first thing you'll do is do all you can to reconcile. Why? Because in Christ, we've been reconciled to God and he fought with his very life for us. Aren't our marriages worth the same? knowing that we have cheated on God each time we've sinned against him? Aren't our marriages worth that kind of effort? Now, let me also say there are times when the adultery has happened and there is no saving the marriage. That's why this exception is there. God does love you. You are valuable in his eyes. If you are the subject of adultery, if you have been caught in that on both sides, and we'll talk about both, You are still valuable to God. I know being cheated on can make you feel like you are of no value to God whatsoever, but let me look you in the eye. I can't look at you all at the same time and say God loves you just as much today as he did the day you found out you were cheated on. You are his child. He created you, 
and he will walk with you each step of the way. He promises he will never leave us nor forsake us. So don't for a minute let that cheating person, we're not gonna call them names, we're gonna love them as well, but don't for a minute let that diminish the un, unconditional love of God, that he loves you and he will walk with you. It is painful. Marriage was designed to be between a man and a woman. That's scripture, very clear. When those marriages break, it is inconsequentially hard to deal with. Why? Because you've got our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that allows us access to God the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as our number one most important relationship in this world. And you know which relationship comes next? Marriage. Marriage is the next institution God has given us to show the world his great love. He also gave us the people of Israel to point back to him. When they didn't do it, Jesus or Isaiah even tells us that God was going to divorce himself from those people. And we are a part of that with the new covenant. In all of these things, marriage is held up as a picture of God's love for his people, even when they are unfaithful to him. And we come back to this picture that adultery is wrong, that it hurts a marriage beyond compare, and it can do irreparable damage. But God gave his own life so that we might have life. Having a healthy marriage will take tremendous work. If adultery has happened, picking up the pieces will be close to impossible in your own strength. But with God, all things are possible. You with me so far? Let's keep going and see what else the scriptures have to say. Well, how does God really feel about divorce in case you were at all confused up to where I've gone so far? In case you're sitting out there thinking, Mike, you don't understand. God won't understand in my case. Well, let me be real clear. In my house, we're not allowed to use the word hate. If we use it, we have to apologize and ask forgiveness because those aren't good words. But in the scriptures, they are. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. We keep coming back to marriage is a bond, a spiritual, intimate, sexual bond that God has brought together. Why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. Do not break faith with the wife of your youth. And then God says this through Malachi. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Well, okay, well, Mike, I don't understand. That's Old Testament, right? And, and there's, we're in the New Covenant. Yes, but let me give you a picture, if you've forgotten our series on Malachi, kind of what was going on in Malachi that bring God to say, I hate divorce. What were the people doing that led him to make such strong statements? Well, they were calling him father, but not honoring him. In other words, Today we would say, well, I'm a Christian, but you know, I really like the teachings of Buddha over here and Taoism over here, Confucian over here. And you know, don't we all worship the same God? No, we do not, people. Just in case you're wondering. I get excited about that one. Second, they were calling him master, but not respecting him. If you have a boss and you go up to him and say, you are in fill in the blank with whatever disparaging word you'd like to say, how long are you going to have your job? Probably not very long. 
the people of God's job was to point the rest of the world to him. So they would call him master. Yeah, God is our God. He's the one. He does all this. Look, he brought us out of, the, or brought us out of Egypt into the promised land. He saved us. He delivered us. He's done all these things. But yeah, we're not actually going to follow him. We're going to do our own thing because he doesn't know better. He doesn't know what's best for us. Sound at all familiar? So this is Malachi's time, the, the mid-400 BCs. They despised the very name of God. They would say it, but they wouldn't live it. They brought offerings, but not what was required. Remember, you were to give to God your very best. And instead, the Israelites in this time period were literally giving sacrifices of the crippled, the spotted, the blind, the, the deformed. They were giving the leftovers to God. Whatever they could, oh yeah, I gotta, gotta give something to God. He'll be happy just that I gave something. Now, let's think about marriage. <laughs> Husbands, have you ever forgotten a birthday? Liars, you have. You're just afraid to admit it. I can't even remember how many years I've been married. When you forget that birthday, inevitably, hopefully reality will set in before midnight has hit on that day. And at some point in time... <laughs> you will rush out to the nearest store of any quality you can find, whether it be Manning's, Watson's, or 7-Eleven, and you will buy a gift of some regard. Don't buy breath mints. It's a bad image to your wife. And you will go and you will present this gift to her. She will say thank you because she loves you. But it is obvious for all to see that you did not do your best to reflect your love for your spouse. Right? Wives, and I'm stereotyping here, this can go both ways, but I'm a guy and I've done it. And so we flip it. Wives have spent innumerable hours painstakingly preparing the most thoughtful, wonderful gift you've ever seen that she listens to your every word, knows what you like, knows what you love, and makes it all possible that that's what she could get. For my 30th birthday, my wife made it possible for me to go watch the eight best male tennis players in the world play tennis. And it was great. And I loved it. What did I do for her 30th birthday? I put her on a boat and got her seasick. (laughs) Who wins that one? There is a difference between what we offer to the Lord, just as there's a difference to how we demonstrate love to our spouses. If I give my wife a pack of breath mints and say happy birthday, she'll say thanks. But it won't be with the intimate love that that gesture should have come with. Nor is it the same with God. And the, the Israelites here were offering God leftovers. They went to 7-Eleven and found whatever they could and gave it to him. Remember, marriage is always a picture of relationships between God and man. And the people that Malachi is talking to had missed the boat. Even the priests, if I was called a priest, think even me, they were turning aside from the way. They weren't teaching the truth of God's word. They were making it up as they went. They were giving wrong instruction to the people because if that's too hard, we're not going to teach that. I'm not going to lie. I wanted to skip over this message because I understand it's painful. 
And I understand that it's a difficult one. It would have been easier for me to skip a couple weeks because next week we're talking about oaths, contracts, and your word. It doesn't get a lot easier there. I wanted to skip to when Jesus teaches on prayer. That we can talk about. But that's not what God's word says. We teach the whole of scripture and the priests weren't doing it. They were dealing treacherously with one another. They weren't being fair and just as God was teaching them to do. And the priests were divorcing their wives. Why is it such a big deal in the news today when pastors get divorced? Because we're held to a higher standard. Those that are teach are held to a higher standard. That's scary. It's terrifying for me. It keeps me up at night sometimes. But by the grace of God and a very patient wife, I'll continue to serve as faithfully as I can. My wife, my church, and most importantly, my Lord. The priests during Malachi's time, they weren't doing that. The sin was systemic and God was going to deal with it. Divorce and unfaithfulness had spread and God had to say something. He'd made a clear provision for divorce, but God clearly shows his heart on the matter through Malachi. Just because he said divorce could happen, it was never his will and it was never his intent. So where's that bring us now? Well, some of you might be thinking, Mike, that's hard. I know you're just saying what's here, but you don't understand. And you're right. I don't understand all of your situations. I know some of you are in very difficult situations in your marriage. I know some of you already are divorced. And what do you do then? And we need to look at what else the scriptures say. Because Paul then gives some further teaching that we need to comprehend and understand as we move on. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul doesn't stop. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Let's stop there. Some of you know people that are involved in a marriage where one is a Christian and the other is not. That is against the will of God. We are told we are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Unequally yoked is a fancy way of saying Christians and non-Christians should not get married. There's a thing that I talk about to teenagers. It's called missionary dating. It does not work. You cannot date a person and lead them to Jesus, statistically speaking. Every once in a while, there are surprises. Sometimes it happens, but it is not God's will that a Christian date a non-Christian. It is very clear. Why? Because sin is much easier than righteousness. More often than not, there are exceptions, but by and large, it is not the righteous that brings up the non-Christian. More often than not, it goes the other way. After a long time, they are worn down. They stop going to church. They stop spending time alone with the Lord because it's just too hard. And some of you can speak to that. You are seeking desperately to follow the Lord while your spouse is not. Good on you. Paul talks to you too. He says, stay with them. Don't leave them. And the amazing thing is what comes next. What if I've married an unbeliever? I know God didn't want me to do that. I made the mistake. What do I do now? He says, don't divorce her. Don't divorce him. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say there's no hope. He explains why. And I'd never noticed this before. I got to be honest. I usually skimmed over this part because I married a Christian. She's awesome. 
But for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. Please don't misunderstand. This does not mean he has been saved through his wife. That is not what Paul is saying here. Follow along. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What is he talking about there? Amazingly, the blessings that come upon a follower of Jesus Christ in the context of, a mar- of an unequal marriage, the unbeliever will enjoy those while they are together. In other words, the children, just as you see here, they are holy before the Lord. In other words, that home can be set apart as a home for the Lord, even though a spouse is not following the Lord. That's what the word sanctified means, set apart. Those blessings that God has for a married couple, he can give to an unequally yoked couple. Is it his will? No, just like divorce. He says, don't do it. But if you've already done it, there's still hope for you. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't run out and say, well, God told me to get a divorce because I'm unequally yoked. That is not the answer. If you've done it, stick with it. Pray and sacrificially love as Christ first loved us and see what God can do. We've got one of our missionaries serving in Cambodia and she continues to love her husband with unconditional love. And everyone in this church, it seems, has tried to lead him to Jesus and as of yet, he's not ready but someday we pray and beg that he will be. Was that God's will for their marriage long ago? No. But now that it is, we, the church family, are going to come alongside them and not point and say, you have a scarlet letter on you. You're not doing it right. No. We're going to walk along and we're going to do all we can to bless that marriage just as the scriptures teach us. If the unbeliever leaves, what happens then? You try to save your marriage and they leave anyway? Let them you will not be a sin in sin. A believing man or woman is not bound. They are freed in those circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. I tried everything, Mike, and I can't save my marriage. They want nothing to do with me, and they are an unbeliever. For a believer that's equally yoked, there's no outs. Other than death, divorce itself, which I really don't want you to do, Uh, and the desertion that we see here. But if they've deserted, you let them go, knowing that God has set you free to start over. There is hope, even in the darkest of situations. I know some of you have been deserted. I know that's a difficult thing, but I want you to know that God in his word reminds you that he's got you, that he loves you, and he's looking out for you. Because God called you to live in peace. What else do we learn? Well, I want to leave you with a couple of principles. We've talked, I think you get the idea, God does not like divorce. It is not his intent. The intent is that we live in marital harmony that points people to Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. And that the world sees that and says, that we've got to have. Why is marriage needing to be defended today? Because Christ followers have not defended marriage in their lives. You want to know why marriage is under attack on so many friends, whether it be homosexual marriage, whether it be the divorce rate, whether it be lousy, unhappy, joyless marriages? 
because we haven't fought hard to remain true to our first love, Jesus Christ. We have made idols out of marriage. We have put marriage on a pedestal and saying, my wife is all I need. She's not. Jesus is. And the minute we think that all we need is human sexual love, we have missed the plot. All we need is love, the love of God. And that transforms hearts and minds. So how, if we're struggling in marriage, how do we get back to a semblance of hope? Well, we go to the scriptures. If you looked in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, you'd be given a pretty good idea of what it means. But before we jump to wives submitting to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, I want you to read the beginning of Ephesians. Keys to a happy marriage are very strangely similar to keys to a happy church. In fact, they're the same. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us, and what comes next? Gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Principles regarding a healthy marriage, starting in Ephesians 5.1. Number one, imitate God. Okay, if God has called the church to be his pure and spotless bride and given Christ as the groom... Well, then we are to follow the example of Christ and love the way Christ loved us, correct? The end of Ephesians says exactly that. So if we are to do that, what kind of love is that? Is that the kind of love that comes into my office and says, Mike, my marriage is broken. They just won't change. That's funny because it happens. Somebody laugh, come on. We go in and we say, they won't put the toilet paper on the roll the right way and I just can't live with it anymore. I'm done. No, that's not Christ-like sacrificial love. What do I mean by Christ-like sacrificial love? Well, you flip a few more pages over to Philippians chapter 2. Come to prayer meeting this week and we'll start praying through this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, comfort from his love, fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit. This is to the church, but it's just as important for marriages. One in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. I'm going to change a word here, and I think I'm allowed because others are included. Consider your spouse better than yourself. Now, I know full well none of you are going to come up to me and say, Mike, I'm better than them. They don't deserve me. But in your mind and in your actions, that may be exactly what you say. You treat them as less than you. You belittle them. And what I'm here to say this morning, you want a marriage that pleases God and is divorce-proof, you honor them the way Christ honored you by giving himself up for us. In other words... Husbands, I'm going to tell you a secret. I really like TV. And when I get home, I get really excited to have a few minutes to sit down and watch tennis. I know, I talk a lot about tennis. I like it. My wife has been with three children that are rather demanding. She could use a break. 
I want the TV. What should I choose? Not what do I choose. (laughs) What should I choose? I should choose to help my wife in whatever way I can. Keys to a happy marriage from a secular study that I shared with you last week. Helping with housework. Remember that. How many of you men did it? We clean a toilet? Wow, three out of 200. We're in trouble. Men, keys to a happy marriage. Statistics show if you help with the housework, your wife is happy. And I got an amen. You know why they're happy? Not just because they don't like to clean, but because you're putting their needs ahead of your own. It's just plain scriptural. What if you considered yourself a servant of your spouse? What if you came home, stinky feet or not, your spouse put their feet up and you said, let me just give you a foot rub. Not because you deserve it, but because I love you. What if you said, let me help? What if you said and meant it, how are you today? Tell me about your day without then going into whatever you're thinking about in your mind and ignoring and going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. We do these things. You want to have a divorce-proof marriage, just like we did at at the beginning of this message, we pray. You pray for your spouse. Auntie Twinkie reminded us that to the kids. Pray for each other. Imitate God who gave himself up for us through Jesus Christ. Put your life on the line to show that spouse that you love them as Christ first loved you. One other thing, and I'll leave with this. Protect your relationship with Jesus Christ before you protect your relationship with your spouse. You want to cultivate a healthy marriage? Cultivate a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. Spend time in his word. Spend time intimately studying, learning, and enjoying a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because as we do that, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live sacrificially for other people, starting with our spouse. Do not forsake your first love. And your first love is not your spouse. Your first love is Jesus Christ. When we get that, it changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. It is hard to think about divorce. It's not easy. But for whatever situation we are in, I thank you that you can redeem that situation through your son, Jesus Christ, and his shed blood for us. Lord, I know some have struggled with divorce here and wonder what to do. May they be reminded they are your child, loved by you, and you will use them in mighty ways. Others are in a hard marriage. I pray you will soften hearts on both sides, and you will be imitated, and your Holy Spirit will empower them to come together as Christ loves the church. I pray that we, a church family, would be pure and spotless, the bride of Christ, and that our marriages would be protected, and we wouldn't just tell people we believe in marriage, we would show it. And most importantly, Lord, I pray that we would be a church wholeheartedly devoted to you, our first love. In your name I pray.